Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I sit down with Iris DeRode, a graduate student at the University of Paris 8 and a current research fellow at the Washington Library. And we discuss the Marquis de Châtelieu, an officer in the French Army in the American Revolution and a close friend of George Washington. As a friendly reminder, tickets are now available for the March 29th Martha Washington Lecture, featuring historians Martha Saxton and Cindy Kerner. Please make sure you rate our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And now, my interview with Iris DeRode. Hey, Iris. Well, thank you uh, for joining us for the interview uh, and, and sort of fitting us in during your, your fellowship. How has your fellowship here been going? Uh, the fellowship has been going very well. I've been here for a month and I've been doing quite a lot of research in the library. Uh, the collection, uh, the general collection, so the books are very interesting for me because they contain much more information on very specific details on the War of Independence, uh, much more than I could find in Paris, so that's helpful. And on top, there's a ge- like the special collections contain material on, for example, the Rochambeau papers that were quite hard to access because they're only on microfilm, so that was a helpful um, yeah, collection for me and there are some other documents and of course you have the real Châtelieu letter there's one that he wrote to Schauler so not Schauler mm-hmm. um, he didn't write it to Washington as was maybe thought before because it's written my dear my dear general but I read it um, and so it's quite obvious that it's not to Washington but to Schauler since there are some indications uh, for example about where Schauler used to live was on the Hudson River and so not the Potomac River. So it was quite obvious that it was not to Washington, unfortunately. But so I found these kind of letters and, of course, also the Washington and Châtelieu letters. Are, some of them are here, so I yeah. can do the research. So, uh, you know, for, for, for our listeners, what, what is your research project? Um, so my research project is focusing on one specific figure called François-Jean de Châtelieu, um, who was, uh, he lived from 1734 to 1788, and he's a French, um, well, we could say soldier philosopher. So he was an officer in the French army, and at the same time he was a philosopher in the French Enlightenment. So he went to lots of French salons. He, he lived especially in Paris, but he also traveled to England or Italy, Germany. So he's this specific type of person that is in the army, but at the same time was a philosopher, as was quite common during the period. So, for example, Guibert was uh, another, uh, well, similar figure as he was. Um, And so I'm doing research on him because I found his private archives in a castle in Burgundy. And these archives contain, well, a lot of material, especially relating to correspondences, but also personal documents and his writings or whatever you can imagine, everything is in there because everything that's in a private archive. Um, And so I decided to work mainly on the exchange of ideas between France and America and, of course, Beck, because he travels in America during his stay with the French army, so from 1781 until 83. Um, he, He stayed here with the French army, but when there was some time, he could travel too. And so he met, for example, Washington, Jefferson. He already knew Franklin and Adams, but he met lots of Americans uh, while he was here. And so he stayed in correspondence with them. So in these letters, you can see a real and clear exchange of ideas uh, from the French Enlightenment to America, in which people, of course, are w- wondering what to do after our independence. How do we organize our country? How do we, um, yes, how do we work together? How do we figure all this out? And so 
the ideas from the Enlightenment are, of course, quite welcomed here. But then, of course, especially when uh, Chatelieu goes back to France, he sees, of course, some issues in his own country. So it's interesting to see this exchange and the dynamics between all these, well, different ideas crossing the Atlantic. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and mm. say that uh, a, a lot of our listeners maybe have never heard of Francois Jean Chatelieu before. Yes, uh, you know because of the the attention that a, that a Rochambeau or Lafayette gets in the United States. How did you come to this project? So it's a, it's a personal story more than anything else. But so uh, when I was young, my parents brought a house in France, so in Burgundy. And we have this very big tree in our garden, which is called the tulipier de Virginie in French. And so that's in American, the tulip poplar tree. And as you hear in French, it's de Virginie, so it's from Virginia. So it's not a natural tree in France, and especially not that old, because it's around 250 years old. And uh, just to stand around it, you have to be with six people with your hands and your arms spread to make the whole turn. So it's a very important big tree. And in the village, people used to say that Lafayette planted that tree in our garden. So since I'm very young, I'm always wondering what happened with that tree and if that was true, because it's an exciting story that this small little tree would arrive from America mm -hmm. in my garden and then with Lafayette. Um, so I well, I figured out at the end that the person that was living in our, um, in our house actually paid some money to go. Um, to I mean, sorry to go, I mean, for the French um, expedition, he just gave money. And as a present, he, gave, he got this little tree. So it's not clear if Lafayette himself planted it. I don't see him sh with a shovel <laughs> in the garden. But OK, you never know. Uh, but what is quite obvious is that that specific tree is from America from that period. So there is something and the exchanges were already there. And so um, during my holidays, I was just traveling around and I was visiting the Châtelieu castle. And I just asked without any knowledge actually on his whole family but I asked a proprietor called um, Philippe de Châtelieu um, if he knew something more about the Franco-American relations of the end of the 18th century and so then he said yes of course my ancestor is called François Jean and he was Washington's best friend and yes has so many stories to tell and so that's when I got triggered by this specific figure and during my master degree I came back and I asked if I could maybe have some um, well, information on, of his archives because I, I thought he might have some documents or something interesting um, he told me you can go back come back here if you're doing a real project like a PhD so he just gave me some little material and he said especially you should maybe just look at the travel diary because that's an interesting document so he gave me something sort of to add and to, to be able to study the travel diaries better and then um, when I came back and decided to do a PhD and then I was already in Paris organizing that also with my professor Bertrand van Rumbeck is his name um, and so I came back and then I was able to visit after a few years of negotiations I could get into these archives. Great. Now um, tell us a little bit more about Châtelieu the, the man. Um, well, so we have to go, of course, back a few centuries. So mm -hmm. Paris, he was born in 1734 out of, well, two very uh, well-known families of his time. So his mother comes from a family called D'Aguesseau. Um, and his well, father was, of course, from the Châtelieu family. So the D'Aguesseau family is a... a um, I have to think about the term in in English, but it's um, well, he's very high in the in the lawmaking system. Let's mm -hmm. say so. He's called um, the Chancelier d'Aguesseau, and uh, well, so he was very high in the French court, especially. And then his father uh, came from this old military family called 
uh, Châteauneuf, and so they are at that time specifically known for it to be like a very old military um, uh, family. And so these two together, well, come together, of course, and François Jean was born in 1734. Um, and this is, of course, a period in which it's very important to be from high nobility to sort of matter in French society. And so Châteauneuf was born in a sort of a philosoph philosophical background from his grandfather and also the military background from his um, from his father, and so these two are combined. And so when he grows up, um, it's not—it's quite, an, I think, difficult youth he has because his father dies when he's eight years old. Then most of his brothers also die mainly in the in the army, very young, and then some of his sisters also die just because of diseases. So he grows up in this well, sort of hard situation with lots of death, <laughs> which is maybe why after that he were, he is very much against wars. We'll see that after. But so. Um, well, while he's growing up, he's familiar with lots of the French philosophers already because his grandfather was, for example, friends with D'Alembert, uh, Diderot, or Voltaire, and well, the most famous French philosophers mm -hmm. came in in the house where he grew up, actually. So he, he just got born into this world of the philosophers, and when he's 13, he had to join the army, as was common for his times, because the young boys would go very quickly into the army where they would get their, educa <coughs> sorry, their education to. Um, so from the age of 13, um, well, he got his education, he learned how to, uh, well, become a good soldier and, of course, officer, because that's what his rank would lead him to. And then, um, um, well, during the Seven Years' War, which breaks out in 1756, um, he joins the regiment of his brother and they go together to Germany to fight, uh, well, especially the Prussians back mm -hmm. then. So that's where he learns the whole like craft of warfare, we could say, and he especially sees how bad it can be because the French, of course, were beaten very badly in Germany and in other parts of the world. As we know, uh, of course, in America, they lost their colonies. And so uh, this is a moment where France sort of lost his their her prestige mm -hmm. um, well, on the world stage so Fran um, well the French officers especially of this period start to think what happened to our big army what happened to our big well uh, important empire that we had it was crumbling down they lost their power and especially military power too and so that's the moment when uh, François Jean will start to think about what happened to our army what's happening actually also to our society and what could we improve to just become the way France should be um, which is a common sort of theme at that period too. So at the end of the 1760s, you can see that François Jean is trying to write lots of things about that. But at the same time, since he was already in this uh, salon circles, because as I said, that's what really he was born into, he started also to write about music, about poetry, about theater, about operas and so on. So he was, um, well, we wanted to participate in as much debate as he could, you could say. So he's trying, he wants to really make his name uh, in this philosophical circles, but also in the military circles. So uh, from that period on, he starts to write. And so he, he starts to think about lots of things uh, amongst, for example, um, happiness in the world. And so how happiness or how governments could create happiness for their people. And that's where he'll start to write about. So in 1772, he published his fir first real book. He already published some articles, but his first real book is De la Félicité Publique. It's in, in English, it's called On Public Happiness. 
Um, so he explores, um, well, happiness and levels of happiness of different types of people through the ages. So it's like a historical account of happiness. And of course, his conclusion is that his own present time can create as well the sort of best form of happiness possible. But especially in the future, happiness will become possible. And he sees America in that book already as uh, sort of the well promising land for happiness. So this is a common theme during the Enlightenment, but he was the first to really study happiness just on its own in that book. Now, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me the first time, well, I only read his book once because I, mm-hmm. like, I don't keep going back to it every night because... Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> uh, I have other things to read. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was, what's interesting is you know, how he defines happiness. Could you sort of elaborate on that? Yes, for him, happiness is... Um, it's it's something that you sort of have to be gained by government. So he doesn't speak about individual happiness, like how do you feel emotions or something. But for him, happiness is something relating to a, a whole group of people. So you could say a nation under one government. And for him, there are some steps that will lead towards happiness. Uh, the first one uh, would be the development, because he's, he's things in progress, he's things in mm-hmm. stages all the time. So for him, happiness would be a sort of ideal state, and to achieve that, you need steps. The ideal state for him is that you need uh, some time, you, have, you need some free time to consider not only just your work, but especially to think about philosophical ideas and so on. So you should have some free time. People should have that to, to become happy. And especially they should be engaged in commerce, in agriculture and in, um, as I said, more cultural and philosophy. So to, to achieve that, the first stage would be to, to stop ignorance, you could say. So everything, that's, that, that's what he says. Yeah. Or, so ignorance and especially, well, barbaric practices and so on, which leads to what, the next step is to stop wars, because if you have wars, you don't have happiness, according to Châtelieu. Then if you go to the third step, it's all about... Um, creating commerce and agriculture which is connected quite a lot to creating peace because he says that you can have you can achieve peace and you can achieve happiness well just through commerce because if you have more commercial ties countries will never fight wars again that's what he thought mm-hmm. believed in um so third stage would be commerce agriculture development all these things and then you can go to the next stage would be which would be development of culture of arts of education and of philosophy and so on so he really thinks in his step and so he thinks that governments should provide the sort of means to create happiness for their people uh now of course he's you know he could become Famous, known. Uh, the reason he's going to be well, let's let's take a step back. Actually, mm. um, what what is because uh, it's one of the things I've been as I've been doing my research on the French army uh, in the American Revolution. One of the things that's struck me the most because uh, I'm coming at this not from uh, originally a European history background mm. um, is the fascination of these French officers, whether they're writing their own books about the Americans. Uh, or reading other people's books about, we're not just Americans, right, but about America, like the, the, the mm-hmm. grander sort of. Um, what What is it that the French officers were expecting to see when they got to this side of the Atlantic? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, because in France at the time, um, well, they were looking for examples of new ideas, and of course they, they could already feel that, well, France had needed improvements, they needed changes, and so they, they needed a new example, and so they created an idea 
uh, this is in the circles of where uh, François Jean was circulating in, the French philosophers, most of them, were trying to find sort of an alternative to what France was known for at the time as an absolute monarchy, of course. Um, so they looked at, at America as a promising new sort of utopia. They imagined that that would be the land of, well, lots of wealth, of liberties, of sort of back to nature, simple values, simple, um, well, for example, they imagined just uh, the opposite of what you could see at Versailles at the court with lots of decadence. They imagined the opposite of that. But especially they believed in sort of new idea of liberties and an asylum for all these people that were persecuted in Europe and so on. So they had a very positive uh, image or idea when they came. There's also some other ideas, but that's something else. But let's just stick to yeah. the more positive one. Um, but so for this positive idea, most of the officers that arrived, there are some journals, also Châtelieu, but you also have someone called Crefke or Berthier. They, mm -hmm. they wrote the same in their journals. When they arrived, they first of all, they arrived <laughs> with their ships because, of course, they had a very long journey to arrive. So this whole French army arrived and no one was there to say hello, to greet them. So they expected sort of a firework show before they arrived, but then they arrived and nothing happened. There was just one officer of the militia that that stood there just to tell them, okay, you can just go there or something. Park park yeah. over there. Yeah. And people were quite hostile too. So the Americans thought, well, there were first Catholics, they ate snails, they ate frogs, and they were uh, sort of feminine. So they had negative ideas on the French mm -hmm. to begin with. And so I think that's the first impression the French had. Then as for uh, Châtelieu, he was... Um, he had both sides. He was quite impressed by lots of things, for example, especially relating to the American elite. They were actually more educated than he would imagine before he arrived. Uh, they had some interesting ideas. They especially, of course, developed agriculture very well. For example, George Washington, but also Thomas Jefferson did. So he was impressed by the, the fact that they yeah, had those well freedoms and liberties, especially relating to religion, for example. So he was quite impressed. But when he looked to other um, social classes, let's say, he was very, um, well, he was quite shocked because he didn't imagine that people would be poor in America because they had this idea of abundance and wealth and that everyone at least had land to work on. But then, of course, there was, a, well, quite a poor European, uh, well, migrants that he saw, mm -hmm. like Scottish or uh, Dutch people too sometimes. So, um he was very ambivalent and also if you go back to the elite and the people he was mainly um, acquainted with, he was not that um, impressed either by, for example, their manners or the fact that they did um, a toasting all the time. So he, <laughs> when he was just eating, just he was enjoying his meal, but he had to stand up all the time drinking, drinking. And he's complaining about people just getting drunk because of the toasting practice. One little example, or the the English, the American language, he thought was not that developed because it was only a practical language, but not really a well developed language. So, it's, well, it's, it's very, a very that's mixed. very French attitude yeah. towards exactly. the English language. Yeah. A little bit arrogant, yeah. of course. Yeah, from the French? No, no, never. never. <laughs> uh, now, what what is his main? What, what is his function throughout the, the, the war, the expeditionary force? Yeah, so he arrives as a, he's called, it's a major general, so that's mainly, uh, he's third in command on, under the main general called Rochambeau. Third in command is mainly, um, he was dealing with logistics mainly, so he was responsible for, for example, when they arrived in Newport, they had this very big camp, so he was uh, in charge of creating the camp and to especially uh, secure it to make it work and to, uh, for example, prevent fires, these kind of things. Um, then, moreover, like during the, the uh, campaign, he was also 
um, well, put in charge of going to all these places uh, to do the reconnaissance, which is called reconnaissance or something I can't reconnaissance, pronounce. Yeah. Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance. So I was doing the reconnaissance um, for especially the, the summer before Yorktown. He had to do, uh, well, some, let's say, research before they could actually decide on how they wanted to uh, proceed during the season. Um, what's also interesting is that uh, when the French army arrived, they actually waited for a whole year because, uh, well, the season was over. They couldn't really do anything. So he had to wait for a year in Newport. Then there were some months in which they could actually fight. And then he had to wait again. Mm -hmm. So Chetlou's role was, yes, he, he, had, he had an active role during the campaigns. But for the rest, he's writing about that quite a lot in his personal letters. He's just bored <laughs> a lot because he just has nothing to do, especially during the winter months. But of course he was especially um, writing lots of reports to the French ministers in France but also in Philadelphia just to, to make sure that everyone knew what was going on so more administrative uh, role than than anything like he wasn't really fighting all the time or anything he was more just doing administration doing this reconnaissance to see yeah what the options were and so especially during uh, the big campaign of course uh, leading to the Yorktown campaign he was very active on making plans for that yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, my day job here at Mount Vernon and, and sort of spending all my time, you know, all George all the time mm -hmm. uh, and seeing how the Continental Army operated. And then, you know, when I go home at night and I'm doing my own research on the French Army, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I think one of the things that you couldn't appreciate so much more and you, you, you really start to feel bad for George Washington mm -hmm. is that he doesn't have, you know, these staff officer types that, that can help with. Uh, a lot of that paperwork can help with mm -hmm. a lot of that administration. Uh, and I, and I, I think it's not a coincidence that uh, when the French army shows up, and especially after the two armies are, are physically combined, mm -hmm. they're north of New York, how much more effective the Continental Army is, not because necessarily the, the French soldiers themselves are so much better troops, but mm. th to have the staff officers with that level of training exactly. uh, and, and the cartographic skills mm. and the engineering skills and logistical mm. skills that, you know, the American army has just not been around long enough to, to develop yes. uh, to that extent is, is, has always been fascinating me. Um, now, of course, when, when Shalou is making these, these trips over uh, to the American army, right? Cause mm. he is one of the, he's, he's the highest ranking French officer that speaks English yes. fluently. Yes, he is. Uh, so, of course, he's going to have to have a lot of talks with uh, our guy here mm -hmm. uh, at Mount Vernon, George Washington. How does yes. that relationship turn out? Um, so that's an interesting relationship because, of course, it starts as just a, well, let's say, military relationship. They're, they have to decide together what they want to do in this big campaign to fight the English. So um, they meet uh, just a few months after the French fleet arrives. I think it's in September of 1781. It's the first time they actually meet. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right. Yeah, September. Yeah. yeah, so in September they meet for the first time, and uh, if you read their personal correspondence, they start to become very close friends. Um, it makes sense because they're from the same generation, they have a similar background, and of course, Chatelieu uh, was not only this military man, but also a philosopher, so I'm sure that Washington appreciated him for both qualities, and he had a very important, um, well, Chatelieu is an important military name, but especially he already had quite a lot of experience, and also Chatelieu was active in the reforms of the French army during the 1760s and 70s, so he knew what he was doing, and so I'm sure that Washington could, yeah, they could speak together, first of all, because Rochambeau didn't speak English, and so Chatelieu did. Um, 
so their relationship developed over time. They they met a few times during the war and then they stayed in correspondence after the war. Um, to the point of which, uh, well, this famous letter was written in which um, Washington himself writes that his soul would be clave to 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 Chatelou's soul, and so their intimate friendship that could never be fade away. These kind of well, sort of almost love de- declarations were in their letters, so they were very close, and they really appreciated each other a lot. And uh, Chatelou is making even a sort of a godly status out of George Washington in his travel diaries, but also when he writes to his friends, he has a real. Um, well, and big admiration for George Washington, for his leadership, for the way he looks, these kind of things. But you could also see such a big admiration as a counterexample of the French king, maybe. But anyway, they really they are real f- friends, and I'm sure in private, in their correspondences, they they are very close. And also on the well, most important decision to take, of course, are, do do we go to New York to attack the English, or do we go to Yorktown, which is of course the main decision to take during the summer of 1781. Um, Chatelou plays a role in convincing Washington because George Washington really wanted to, <clears throat> sorry, really wanted to attack New York. But then the French army foresaw a very big uh, failure to go to New York because it was too dangerous. And some reports are written in that period just that sort of calculates the the options, and you can really see that um, well, New York would be maybe possible but very dangerous to yeah. go to and so Yorktown is much more a sort of a safer way of going even if of course it was quite a big gamble anyway because no one knew if everything could work out but at least Chetlou is one of the people that convinced Washington I would say uh, to make the decision to not go to New York but to attack Yorktown. Yeah I, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by uh, how similar their backgrounds are in some way right that they you know one of them is obviously French aristocracy. Mm. The other one's not doing too shabby with being Virginia gentry. Exactly. Either, right? But they're, you know, uh, Chetelou is not the, the oldest son, so he's not going to get a lot of the advantages, you know, as no. many of the advantages. Almost none of the advantages, you could say, because he's the youngest son, and he was, uh, most of his time, most of his lifetime, he was very poor, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, Washington... You know, is yeah, he's he's part of the Virginia gentry, but it's you know until he marries Martha, he's mm-hmm. it's, it's the lower lower portion of it, uh, and then both of them suffer. You know the the, the travesty of having their fathers die mm-hmm. when they're when they're very young, and I, I do, have you you know when looking through it, does that play? Do you think that plays any role into? Um, the friendship, or where, why, where does that friendship come from? I mean, of course, Lafayette is what in his early twenties, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, as much as we talk about like. Lafayette and Washington's relationship—it's—it's—it's it's, it's much more of a father-son mm. thing. So how do how do how do Washington and Chateau compare? Or where so do you think uh, it comes yes, from? Their, their background. So both from let's say sort of aristocracy. Of course, it's different, but mm-hmm. still they come from a specific social background. And what I would say is that Chetlou has been interested for a very long period in military matters, but also this philosophical side. And if you look at what Washington, especially later on, would be interested in, in even the the theme of happiness or the Mm -hmm. theme of let's just uh, try to prevent wars to happen and let's... um, exchange the sword for the plow and these kind of ideas, uh, that is totally what Chetley would say also. So you can really see a, a clear um, 
well, friendship on because they have the same ideas. They share the same ideas, same principles. These French enlightened ideas apparently appealed to Washington, so I'm sure that they spoke about these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And they just had sort of the same level of ideas, and they could get along for that. But also their personality, as you said, um, well, so they're same age, same generation. They both fought the Seven Years' War too, so it's they just have similarities. Uh, the fact that they lost his, their father, maybe even if for François Jean de Chatelou, he was raised by his grandfather after, so not sure how big, big that impact was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can really see that Chatelou over throughout his life is quite afraid of just well getting sick or being like to die soon and things like that to die on an early stage of his life he's afraid of that all the time you can feel that almost all his letters he writes about his health so um maybe it had an impact on him but i would say the 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 friendship between george washington and chatelieu is mainly based on same interests and especially also his knowledge of on warfare Mm -hmm. Uh, chatelieu for example was very close to guibert guibert who wrote of course tactics and well important military um strategies and so um yeah, Chatelier knew all these circles. He knew uh, he was close to the French Minister of War, these kind of things too. So he really knew, well, warfare. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that he could advise George Washington on that too. Yeah, I, f- I find it so fascinating, these two guys, that so much of their life revolves mm-hmm. around war. Mm-hmm. What, you know, in their, in, in, in sort of, bo- and we know this, right, because they discuss it in their letters to each other, mm-hmm. want so much to not have to do that job anymore, which I think is, mm-hmm. it which, was very philosophical. Exactly, very <laughs> philosophical, and also like, how can we prevent wars to happen? Uh, that's one of the main things Chatelier is working on is his whole life, actually. And so uh, he thinks war is the worst thing that can happen to to anyone. <clears throat> Even during the Seven Years' War, there is a journal he writes, and he's he's afraid all the time. He just doesn't know what's happening. It's one big chaotic thing for him. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice. Um, and so um, he really wants to look at how do we prevent this. And also he became, of course, uh, well, he sort of decided to become a philosopher. So that's, I think, something he was much more interested in. But at the same time, he still was a military. So it's it's a complicated sort of relationship with themselves they, mm-hmm. they had. Because how to deal with the fact that I am, of course, um, a military. Some, some wars they thought, too, were worth fighting for. Some others were not. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, especially for Francois Jean that, you know, you, you're not really given an option at that level of French aristocracy, all, right? No. I mean, it's, you're, yeah. you, you might want to write books for a living, but... Uh, well, the other option would have been the church, so um, that's something, well, children or the parents had to decide, do we, mm-hmm. well, does the little child go to the army or to the church and so François Jean's mother said he, he, he n'a pas de penchant pour la religion is what she said so <laughs> he will not be suited for that yeah. which I would say is true because he was a clear atheist so yeah. yes um, well you know this is uh, this has been great we've, we've loved having you uh, for this month uh, well, thank you what is what is next for you I mean are you I know I know Bertrand will one of these answers better be finished the dissertation in a timely yes, manner exactly. I'm sure uh, yeah. But what else? Um, so that's my real first mm-hmm. step. And then I would really like to turn my dissertation into a book, so a published version of it. So I have to change quite a lot because I'm working quite a lot of, for example, theories of cultural transfers. I think that's maybe a bit less important than just to create a, a biography on mm-hmm. François Jean focusing on his philosophical but also military side. So I'd like to do that as a first step. And um, 
Well, then, that's a very big question of what I want to do next. But I'm sure there are lots of interesting projects we could do. Maybe we can, uh, well, decide on what to do with these huge archives that are still unpublished, or at least they will be for a little part. But yes, what to do next. So it would be interesting to see with Mount Vernon what the possibilities could be on digitizing, but also organizing events of launching all that, but also um, maybe working more on not only Châtelieu, of course, but the, the well, sort of persons like Châtelieu, because mm-hmm. he, as a, a philosophical uh, soldier, you could say like a soldier philosopher, I would say these kind of people play a much more important role in exchanging ideas, not only, of course, philosophical, but also military, um, as what people or scholars would say today, because we own, we focus mainly on les grands philosophes, but we don't really focus on this specific specific. specific type so i think it's interesting to look at these people more but also in the role of the well the french role in the american independence what well, could have some more um, attention so i would say it could be a good way of going there well thank you so much for coming on the show and we look forward to the book thank you very much thank you for listening to this episode of conversations at the washington library be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts 